Hello, you guys. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi. My name is Savannah, and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday, and you do not want to miss it. If you have a moment, I would really appreciate if you went ahead and rate and reviewed this podcast as well. I always love hearing your guys' feedback and suggestions as to how to make this podcast better for you. So if you could do that, that would also be lovely. So as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the case of the Cam family. On September 28th of the year 2000, Kimberly Cam and her children, Brad and Jill, were all murdered in their home in Georgetown, Indiana. This case has a lot of twists and turns, so without giving too much away, we are just going to jump right on into it today. So let's break down the Cam family for a minute. So the Cam family consists of four people. You have David Cam, who is the father, Kimberly Cam, who is the mother, and then you have their two children, Brad and Jill Cam. Like I said, the family lived in the small town of Georgetown, Indiana, and in the year 2000, Georgetown's population was at about 2,235 people, so definitely on the smaller side. And from the outside, as we always seem to say, everything seemed perfect about this family. The Cams seemed to live a very idyllic lifestyle. David Cam actually worked for the Indiana Police Department, so he worked in law enforcement. However, just a couple months leading up to his family's murder, he ended up quitting his job in law enforcement to work at his family business that worked on waterproofing basements. Now, everyone in his family was really happy about David's new career change because this career change allowed him to spend a lot more time at home with his wife and kids. He had more predictable hours hours, and along with this, he also made a lot more money, so it was a win-win all the way around. So we're going to jump to the day of September 28th, 2000, and we're going to talk about these series of events from David Cam's perspective, because for right now, that's really all we have to go off of. So on the night of the 28th, David was playing basketball with 11 other people at the town's local church. This wasn't something unusual for him. He did this quite often, and he got there at about 7 o'clock p.m. on September 28th, and he played the basketball game until about 9.20 p.m. Once 9.20 hit, David got into his car and drove home, but little did David know that his entire life was about to change forever. Once David pulled into his driveway and opened the garage door, he saw his wife Kim's body laying on the floor of the garage next to their car. Immediately, in a frantic panic, David jumped out of the car and ran over to Kim, yelling her name. David said he was yelling, Kim, 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 trying to get her up and trying to help in any way that he could. However, according to David, when he got to Kim's body, he realized that it was too late and she had already passed away. Now, at this point, David said his next thought was immediately, where are the kids? Where are Brad and Jill? And David's first thought was to look in their Bronco SUV car that Kim's body was lying next to in the garage, and that is when he saw the lifeless bodies of both of his children. Brad's body was spread out over the back seat of the car, and Jill's body was still sitting in her seat, and the upper part of her body was folded over into her lap. 
Thinking there might be still a chance to save him, David grabbed Brad from out of the car, placed him on the ground, and began to do CPR. However, it was already too late. Now, when CPR proved to be unsuccessful, David called the Sellersburg, Indiana Police Department and asked to speak directly to the command post, something he knew to do due to his past experience in law enforcement. So basically, when he got on the phone, he just automatically asked to speak with the supervisor instead of the 911 operator. Now, the 911 phone call that David made is out there and you can listen to it. And David does sound very distraught on this phone call. He's yelling at the people on the other line, telling them to bring everyone out to his house. And while waiting for them to come to the cam home, David ran across the street where his grandfather's house was. He happened to be neighbors with his grandfather and his uncle was staying at his grandfather's house at the time. So when he arrived at the home, he told his uncle what had happened and the two of them went back over to his house. Now this was all happening very quickly. Authorities arrived to David's home at around 9.30 p.m. approximately. So this all happened very fast and when they got there, they were able to confirm that all three of David's family members were dead. Both his wife and their two children had been murdered. All three of them had died from gunshot wounds. Kim and Jill were each shot once in the head, almost like execution style, and Brad had been shot in the abdomen. Now, when going through the crime scene, which was the garage, authorities made multiple different interesting discoveries. Now, the first thing that they noticed was the whole scene itself was extremely clean given the circumstances. There didn't look like there was some massive struggle where things were thrown onto the ground or there was a fight. There wasn't a lot of blood anywhere. It literally just looked like all three of them had been shot and whoever was responsible had easily been able to walk away. Another thing authorities found when they arrived was that Kim's shoes were placed on top of their Bronco SUV. So her shoes were placed on top of the car. Now, according to Kim's family and to David, this was not something that she would typically do. And this is not something that most people do in general. Usually when you get out of the car, you don't take off your shoes and place them on top of the car. So that was something that stuck out to police for sure and something that they didn't really have an answer for. Now, along with this, Kim's pants were removed from her body and there were also two big pieces of forensic evidence that were found on the crime scene. The first piece of forensic evidence was a palm print found on the SUV car in the garage. The second piece of evidence was a gray sweatshirt that was found near Brad's body in the back of the car. Now, when authorities looked at the sweatshirt, they saw that there was multiple bloodstains on it. In the collar of the sweatshirt, someone had written the name backbone. Now, at first, police had absolutely no idea what this meant. They didn't know who backbone was or if it was even a person at all. However, they knew that they had to find out, so they collected all of the evidence from the crime scene and immediately got to work. Now, it really didn't take police long at all to come up with a theory as to what they believe happened the night Kim and her kids were murdered. Pretty much automatically, authorities believed that David was the one that was 
responsible for his family's deaths, and only three days after the murders, on October 1st, 2000, David was arrested for the murders of Kimberly, Brad, and Jill. And remember how wild this is? The same colleagues that David had just worked with months prior, the people he worked alongside with every single day, were now arresting him for the murder of his family. This came as a complete shock to everyone. So now that this case was headed to trial, the trial began on January 14th, 2000, and one of the main pieces of evidence that the prosecution presented to the jury actually came from David's clothing. On the night of the murders, David was instructed to hand his clothes over that he was wearing to the authorities, and when they inspected it, they found eight small blood spatter stains on David's shirt. Now, what authorities labeled this blood spatter as was something called, quote, high-velocity impact spatter, end quote. Authorities brought in a blood analyzing expert who said that this type of spatter found on David's shirt is a result from blood being hit by something very hard, very fast. He said that this type of blood spatter is something that is extremely rare and that whoever got this particular type of blood spatter on them would have had to have been in close proximity, meaning about four feet of the shot being fired. Now, David argued this by saying that the blood had actually transferred over to his shirt when he was pulling Brad out of the car. So it wasn't because of high-velocity impact spatter, but just because when he pulled Brad from out of the car, Brad's blood got onto him. The prosecution also argued that David had made a phone call from his house at 7.19 p.m., which would have broken up his alibi that stated that he was in the church gym at the time. However, this statement ended up being proven wrong when a Verizon wireless employee actually testified that due to a software error, the timestamp on the phone call was wrong and the call was actually placed at 6.19 p.m. when David was still at home before he left to go play basketball. Now, I want to talk about this basketball game because David was gone, like I said, around the time of 7 p.m. to 9.20 p.m. on the 28th, and he played a basketball game with 11 other people. Now, all of these 11 people in that Jim said that David was there throughout the entirety of the game and that he never once left. Now, according to the medical examiner, it was reported that the time of death for the family was around 8 o'clock p.m., and if David was at the basketball game for almost two and a half hours, how would he have been able to murder his family if the time that they were killed was the time that David wasn't home? Now, during the trial, the prosecution basically argued this by saying that they believe David was at the gym playing basketball, snuck out when no one was watching him and no one noticed, went home and murdered his family, and then came back to the gym to finish off the basketball game like nothing ever happened. Now, to support their argument that David was the killer, the prosecution also wanted to find motive. They needed to find a motive as to why David would want to kill his entire family, and for them, this didn't take too long to do. During the investigation process, it was discovered that David had had affairs with at least 12 women 
throughout his marriage with Kimberly. Now, these dozen of women were either women he had affairs with or were women who were approached by David and he had made advancements towards them. However, they rejected him. Now, David didn't deny any of these affairs. He admitted to them, but backed it all up by saying that even though he cheated and was unfaithful, he wasn't a murderer. But the prosecution really took this and leaned into this to prove that David was not happy in his marriage and wanted out. Now, after a very long deliberation process, the jury ultimately found David Cam guilty of murder on March 17th, 2002, and he was sentenced to 195 years in prison. When David was first sentenced, there were a lot of conflicting opinions on this. A lot of people believed that he was completely innocent. There were 11 witnesses who put him in that church gym at the time of the murders. However, on the flip side of that, after hearing about his infidelity and the blood spatter, people thought that it was possible that he could be responsible. Now, what about the handprint that was found on the SUV? And what about the gray sweatshirt that had a backbone written in the collar that was found next to Bradley's body? These things were never investigated and it would take years until they were looked at closely again. So now we're going to fast forward to 2005, so about three years after David was convicted. It took three years for authorities to run accurate, and I say accurate for a reason, we will get there soon, test results on the DNA that had been found on the gray sweatshirt. So in 2005, when test results were done, there was an unidentified male DNA that had been found on the sweatshirt, the gray sweatshirt. And I do want to point out that from the very beginning, David has maintained his innocence on this. He said that he has absolutely nothing to do with his family's murder, and along with that, he always claimed that the sweatshirt found next to his son was the key piece of evidence in this case. He said he didn't know whose sweatshirt it was, he didn't know who it belonged to, and he had never seen it before. However, finding whose DNA was on that sweatshirt would be crucial. So when the DNA was ran, there was an unidentified male DNA, like I said, and when that DNA was ran through the database, it came back as a match to a man named Charles Bonet. Charles Bonet was a man who had been convicted of three counts of robbery and one count of attempted robbery in 1989. In 1993, Charles was sentenced to 20 years for three counts of armed robbery and three counts of criminal confinement, all of which Charles chalks up to him being young, foolish, and ignorant. Charles also had a history of attacking women, and Charles's sweatshirt wasn't the only piece of his DNA that was left at the crime scene. The palm print found on the SUV at the crime scene also came back as a match to Charles as well. With these new discoveries, it obviously brought up the question to the prosecution team on the trial as to why this DNA wasn't found when the initial trial began. Why did it take years after for this DNA to be matched? 
matched when Charles's DNA was back in the system the whole time. According to the prosecutor, he said that he had asked the lab to check the DNA and run it through the system. However, nothing came back as a match when they did so. Charles had actually been released from prison three months before the Cam family murders. So after finding his sweatshirt at the crime scene, authorities knew that they had to bring Charles in for questioning. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So during the first interrogation, Charles said that he didn't know who David Kim was, he had never heard of him, and the two of them had never met before. One thing that Charles did admit to, though, was the fact that he had a foot fetish. Now, when authorities heard this, they made an instant connection to the fact that Kim's shoes were found on top of her car at the crime scene, and she was barefoot. Charles was asked if he could understand the logic someone would have and the connection that they would make to with him having a foot fetish and then Kim's shoes being taken off and her being barefoot at the time of her death. Charles admitted that even though he could understand why people would make that connection, it simply just was not the case. Now, after making his first initial statement stating that he never knew and never even met David Cam, Charles changed his story. Charles came forward and actually said, quote, I gave Pinocchio a run for his money at the Oscars, end quote, in terms of the lies that he told in regards to his first statement. Charles admitted that he and David had met prior, however, the only reason that he knew about David was because Charles was selling a gun to him. So due to that statement and due to the DNA linking Charles to the crime scene, on March 5th, 2005, Charles was arrested and charged with the murder of the Cam family, as well as conspiracy to commit murder. Now, four days after Charles's arrest, the murder charges against David had actually been dropped, and he was released from prison. Now, at first, this all seemed too good to be true, and it very much was. Only an hour after David was released from prison, he ended up getting arrested again. Only an hour he was released, he ends up getting arrested again and charged with three counts of murder. Now, you might be very confused. However, according to the prosecution, the reason that David was even released to begin with was because Charles and David were now being charged together for three counts of murder against the Cam family and one count of conspiracy 
conspiracy to commit murder, and the only way to charge him with the new charges would be to drop the original ones, which is why he was released and then arrested again. Now, according to David, he said that he's never heard of Charles Bonet. When finding out that his sweatshirt and DNA was found at the crime scene, David was thrilled because he thought that they finally caught the person responsible for this. However, he claims he never met Charles before. However, according to Charles, this is not the case. Charles claims that him and David had met on a basketball court just a couple weeks before the murder. Charles said that David had asked him if he had access or knew someone who had access to a handgun. Then, on the night of September 28th, Charles said he brought a handgun to David's home and transported it in the gray backbone sweatshirt. That's what he was carrying the gun in, which was why it was found in the SUV. Now, the next series of events are coming from what Charles recalls. Charles recalls that while he was in the house giving David the gun, a black SUV pulled into the garage with Kim and her kids inside of it. Charles said that once it pulled into the garage, David took the gun that he was just given, walked inside of the garage, and that is when Charles said that he heard three gunshots, which were the sounds of David murdering his family. After the gunshots, Charles said that David walked back inside and pointed the gun at him and pulled the trigger in hopes of murdering Charles too. However, there wasn't any more bullets left in the gun, so David's attempt was unsuccessful. Charles also said that after David attempted to shoot him, Charles chased David around the house in order to get the gun back. However, he wasn't able to do so, and he ultimately left. I'm not exactly sure in what terms he said that he left on. That was never made clear, but he ultimately said that he just left the house. So both David and Charles's trial began in January 2006, and the men were charged on opposite sides of the state. When it came to David's trial, the prosecution argued that Kim discovered that David had been molesting his daughter Jill, which was the reason that David wanted to kill his family in order to cover up the crime. Now, the prosecution really didn't have anything to back this statement up, and the defense said that Jill didn't show any signs of molestation, she didn't mention any pain in a dance class that she was in the day of the murder, and she was overall a very happy kid. Kim Kim's friends also testified in court saying that Kim was upset in the weeks leading up against the murder and was planning on taking her kids on a trip to Florida. The defense argued saying that Kim did not tell anyone about any problems she was having with David and that David had just finished remodeling their bedroom prior to the murder, so why would he murder his family if he had just made those remodels? Now, something very interesting that came to light in the second trial was the DNA analyst from the Indiana State Police, which is a woman named Lynn Scamahorn. She actually testified saying that during the first trial, the prosecutor threatened her after she told him that David's DNA was not found on Charles Bonet's sweatshirt after conducting more than 300 tests. So now we have a DNA analyst saying that she was basically threatened when she told the prosecution she 
wasn't going to lie. However, nonetheless, on March 3rd, 2006, David Cam was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murders of his family for the second time. When it came to Charles's trial, his trial began on January 10th, 2006, and by January 26th, so just 20 days later, Charles was found guilty of the murders of the Cam family, as well as conspiracy to commit murder. And on February 23rd, Charles was sentenced to 225 years in prison. However, this was not the end for David Cam, because there was actually a third and final trial. I just want to run down the cost of these trials really quickly before we move forward, because I think it really puts things into perspective. The first trial costed about $1 million. The second trial costed $3.3 million, and the fourth trial cost $4.5 million. So this third trial began on August 19th, 2013, and a big reason for this third trial in general was because the prosecutor for the second trial was a man named Robert Stites. He actually lied about his credentials. He had never been accepted into any master's or PhD program, and as the defense put it in the trial, he, quote, flunked general chemistry. Robert's defense for this was he said the initial prosecutor for the first trial, the one who allegedly threatened the DNA analyst, had actually helped him embellish his credentials so that he could be the lead prosecutor on the trial. So a third and final trial happened, and it began on August 19th, 2003. They went through the entire case again, front to back, and ultimately, on October 24th, 2013, David Cam was found not guilty on all charges. So this man just went from being in jail on life without parole for the murder of his family to being free after going through three separate trials. After the third trial, a juror was asked the question by the media of did they think the prosecution intentionally wanted to convict an innocent man in reference to David, to which this juror replied, I would hope not, but I sense that the state police had a hard time admitting that they made a mistake. After the charges were dropped, David was set free and again released from prison, and when describing how he felt after being released, David said that he has had a smile on his face since the day that he was released, and he is grateful every single day that justice was finally served. Now, when it comes to Charles Bonet, he has not gone away quietly. Charles has attempted to appeal his case multiple times, however, he has been unsuccessful each time. Time. And along with that, he has maintained over the years that he is the innocent one in this situation, and David, who is a free man walking, is actually the guilty one here. I will say that Charles's ex-wife has come forward and defended him, saying that he does have anger problems. However, he would never do something like this to anyone. And that's where I'm really interested to hear your guys' opinion. Do you think David is guilty? Do you think he's innocent? Do you think Charles is guilty? Clearly, I think it's safe to say that Charles was there at some point, whether that was to drop off a gun, whether that was to actually commit the murders himself. Charles Bonet was at David Cam's home at some point. It's just for the purpose we are unsure about. 
It's obviously not uncommon to look at the closest person to the victim. So obviously David's going to be looked at in this situation, but I do think regardless of anything, there was a lot of faulty police work or law enforcement work on the prosecutor's side. And I think that their egos got in the way and they were so set on David being the murderer and they couldn't see anything else past that. I definitely encourage you guys to watch interviews of David, interviews that he's done, just because I think it's interesting to hear how he recounts the night itself and his body language and his behavior throughout it. This is one of those cases where I don't know what I believe. I don't know if I believe David is 100% innocent. I was very surprised to hear that no one really talked about the possibility of murder for hire if David had hired Charles to murder his family, but at the same time, I feel like that is something that Charles would admit to. He wouldn't come up with this elaborate plan of... I gave the gun to David and then he went off while I was at the house and shot his entire family and then I didn't say anything about it. But then again, maybe he did. Maybe that's exactly what happened and neither of them want to say anything about it. But I was surprised that that wasn't something that was talked about more. So I definitely encourage you guys to go and listen to some interviews and also listen to Charles's interviews as well. He has done many, many interviews over the years. This case has gotten a decent amount of media coverage. So there's a lot out there that you can watch from the people who are actually involved in this. All of David's family has had his back since day one. They've said that he absolutely had no part in this, that he loved his family, and there's no way he would ever do something like this. And they really fought throughout his entire time in prison, the 13 years that he was in prison, to get him out. And that's what's crazy to think. If David is not responsible for this, he was incarcerated for 13 years over a crime he didn't do for the murder of his family. Could you imagine being falsely accused of murdering your family and being put in jail for 13 years because of it. So that's another point I want to make. I'm not sitting here trying to say that I think that David is responsible because if he's not responsible and this happened to him, that is absolutely so terrible. There really are no proper words to describe it. So let me know what you guys think. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. You can always email me there. Your questions, comments, thoughts, case requests, all of those can be sent to that email. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you were new here, again, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Again, if you have the time, I would love for you to rate and review the podcast as well. I love looking at your guys' suggestions as to how I can make this show even better for you guys. So go ahead and give it a rate and give it a review and I will take a look at all of your thoughts there as well. I will be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. I hope you all have a fabulous week and a great weekend. And until then, stay safe, guys.